Welcome. I'm Richard Prosh, and this is another edition of Six Gun Justice Conversations. These are bonus downloads where my co-host Paul Bishop or I hang out around the virtual Six Gun Justice campfire and spend some time talking with friends who work in the Western genre. With me for this edition is Spur Award-winning author Jefferson Glass. Jefferson Glass relocated to central Wyoming from Oregon in 1981. He was the founder and former chair of the Evansville Historical Commission, a certified local government for the town of Evansville, Wyoming. He later served on the board of directors for the Kadoma Foundation, a nonprofit historical preservation organization based in Casper, Wyoming. He's a relentless researcher with specific interests in the Rocky Mountain and Northern Plains regions of the United States. He has written several articles for Annals of Wyoming, True West Magazine, and wyohistory.org. Glass's 2014 book, Reshaw, The Life and Times of John Baptiste Reshaw, was awarded Best Nonfiction Book by the Wyoming Historical Society in 2014 and received the prestigious Spur Award for Best First Nonfiction Book from Western Writers of America in 2015. Thanks for reining in with us today, Jeff. Glad to be here. Hey, congratulations are in order uh, for your new book, Empire, The Pioneer Legacy of an American Ranch Family, which has been nominated for a Will Rogers Medallion. Yeah, yes. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Up until just a, a few years ago, I wasn't even familiar with uh, the Medallion Awards. And there's, uh, it's an honor to be among the many fine, fine writers that have uh, received this award over the year. So where did your interest in Martin Gothberg's family come from? And how did, how did this book develop? I wrote an article for Annals of Wyoming a number of years ago on a man made, named Martin Lord Bishop. And he was a, uh, a pioneer sheep rancher in Wyoming. His family, consequently, wanted to get the family home in Casper, which was the first two-story brick house ever built in Casper, Wyoming. They wanted to get it on the National Register. And they asked me to help them to research for that uh, project, and I did. Lo and behold, go forward to a few years ago, Susan Littlefield Haynes, who is the present owner of the Gothberg Ranch, is a member of the Daughters of American Revolution. She was at a DAR meeting with Susan Bishop, who I would work with on this Bishop family project. She was saying she wanted to get the, the Gothberg Ranch on the National Register of Historic Places. And Susan Bishop told her, she says, you need to contact Jefferson Glass He's a fantastic researcher, and he did a ton of work to help us get the Bishop of Home on the National Register. That was how the whole project got started. And I spent a couple of years researching Martin Gothberg and the Gothberg Ranch for uh, Mrs. Haynes for possibility of going on the National Register, and that is still in progress. But that's how I, I came, you know, came to know Martin Gothberg. In the course of my research, I found he was a pretty fascinating guy. I lived in Casper for almost 40 years. It was kind of a surprise to me. I mean, I knew where Gothberg Road was. I knew, you know, some, some things around the area that were named after him. But he wasn't a really prominent person. He wasn't, uh, it wasn't something that everybody knew who this guy was and what he did. And uh, I got researching him, and he was really an amazing man. The ranch grew so exponentially from starting with a 160-acre homestead in 1885 to over 40,000 deeded acres of land when he died in 1947. That's a pretty amazing growth. That's an incredible legacy, isn't it? It is an incredible legacy. 
I had the same as, as Risha when I was researching it. I just couldn't hardly believe that nobody had hardly heard of this guy. But as I did the research also, I learned that he wasn't a real, real charismatic person, I guess would be a good word for it. He kind of played out of the limelight. He was very smart, a very wise investor. He was associated with all these people that were the charismatic individuals that were the history of Central Wyoming. You know, you read about him all over the place. He was the guy that was kind of behind the scenes and was probably in reality the brains of the outfit on a lot of these companies that he just wasn't a, one of the, the people that made the newspaper all the time. How is he seen nowadays? He was known for extreme honesty. He was known for extremely hard work and known for his intelligence, obviously. He was a very wise businessman and investor. Researching newspapers, I, I researched about, about 40 years of Casper and Cheyenne newspapers when I was doing this project. And he would show up in Casper on jury duty constantly and on a number of grand juries. You know, supposedly, you know, this is a lottery to pick these people for these juries. But in that day and age, there was probably not a lot of people that were quite literate, and he was. And uh, also, because of his honesty and integrity that he was known for, he was a very obvious choice for judges and attorneys when that kind of things came up. He uh, was a juror on some pretty serious cases over the years, both on a local level in that Casper region uh, and a state level in Cheyenne. So you grew up in ranch country of Southeast Oregon. Did you participate in ranch work or riding, roping, that sort of stuff? I grew up, uh, my family had a little 50-acre place in the, in, the, in the middle of that ranch country. It was uh, beautiful as far as uh, uh, ponderosa pines and meadows, and, and, uh, but it was small. And uh, I don't think we ever had uh, probably more than about six at the maximum. I raised 4-H steers every year growing up, and we would raise our own beef and beef for friends and family, but we weren't a really a cattle operation. We had one old plug horse that I learned how to ride a horse on, but growing up with, about the time I was about 13 years old, I started working for ranches, not as a working cowboy, but working irrigating hay fields and working haying operations a lot. And uh, I went to school with all these kids that uh, were some of them third and fourth generation ranch families. And they're around it all the time. Somebody asked me one time, it says, uh, if I could rope. And I said, well, I can, I can rope a fence post if it doesn't move away too fast. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Growing up around, around those people and, and having friends that worked ranches and grew up on ranches, you begin to understand the thought process that goes behind ranching. And I, I think that helps with your with your historic writing, I, I would think. No, absolutely. And and ranching and anybody that's been around it very much or, or involved in it, ranching's not a profession. It's a way of life. You you learn that that cowboy culture uh, and you grow up in that cowboy culture, even if you're not directly involved in it. I learned to truly ride in the 1980s. Had a wife passed away and uh, shortly after she did, I had a little five-acre place just Casper at the time and I bought a horse just to keep me occupied. And during that time, I was very good friends with the rancher that was just a mile up the road from me and had several thousand acres of land to ride anywhere I wanted, do anything I wanted. And I rode almost every day, just trying to get my, my mind straightened out after that experience. And a couple of years there, uh, I became a pretty good rider. I haven't been on a horse now for 
probably four or five years the last time I was on one. And uh, I've tried, we'd be very saddle sore if I went for an all day ride right now. <laughs> <laughs> It's kind of like falling off a bicycle, you know, once you get back on it, you, 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 you do it again, but it's something you don't forget. But uh, I, I know some really fantastic riders. I'm not, I, I uh, well, I, I can usually manage to keep them falling off one and make a joke of it. But uh, I, I've, I've ridden a fair amount, but I'm not, a, I, I'm not a really great writer. You recently shared some of your favorite books with True West readers in True West magazine, the July, August 2021 issue. Um, I've got, I've got it here in front of me, you know, the day of the cattleman by Ernest Staples, Osgood, uh, Charles Goodnight, Cowman and Plainsman by J. Evitz Haley, Longhorns North of the Arkansas, Ralph Jones, The Ranchers, a book of generations by Stan Steiner and the ladders of rivers, the story of IP Olive, which of those is your favorite or, or do you have a, a different favorite you'd like to share today? Boy, it's really tough to choose a favorite out of those five. But I, I, I really have to say the Charles Goodnight story. For one thing, I thought it was quite amazing for, I, th- I think that book was written around 1930. I, I don't have it in front of me to tell you exactly. For what was available at the time uh, for research, of, you know, for source materials and things, uh, it was amazingly well-researched. And not only that, Haley, that wrote the book, had been a, a, a newspaper man, I believe, uh, at the time. And uh, he had interviewed Charles Goodnight several times before he passed. So to not only have all this background, but then to be able to turn around and ask the guy, well, this deal I read in the, the newspaper from 1890 was you know, some big political thing was going on in ranching in Texas at the time. And he goes, what's your take on it? And then he would get a true insightful thing. And, 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 and from everything you, when you read the book, you really get a feel for the man. And this guy was, he was the real deal. He was tough as nails. There's a reason the good night trails named after him because he's, he's, he was the best and driving the cattle. He, he made enough money at it to really get into ranching on his own. Uh, he kind of was kind of a on again, off again rancher in those early years. From my recollection, it's been a few years since I've read the book, but it, it was just really an amazing story. I really enjoyed it. Uh, very entertaining. It was really a fun book to read and a, and a fascinating story. And what and the other thing I liked about it is because it, there was a lot of trail stuff in, in parts of that book. When they brought Longhorns from Texas all the way up into Wyoming, Montana, you know the the Lonesome Dove story is really based on him. He was he was quite a quite an individual. I w- he would have been a fascinating character to know. He definitely would have. And and two, you know, you've written about men like him, like. Uh... Martin Gothberg, you know, you, it, you have to be kind of envious when you read that book thinking, wow, what if, you know, if you could have had access to Gothberg personally, yeah. you know? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, I was fortunate, I, really, in my in my research on Gothberg. In 1918, there was a, a series of three books that were written that was the history of Wyoming at that time. And Gothberg was interviewed. There was about a uh, seven-page on Martin Gothberg. This guy had interviewed him in 1918. He had told this man about uh, the early days of the open range, being, being a cowboy in the open range before before he ever homesteaded. And to give you a little quick kind of feel on Gothberg, he was born in Germany, but his family came to America when he was like six months old. He grew up in New Jersey. He got a school education. He graduated high school when he was 16, and that was 1880. He and his best friend wanted to see wild Indians. They wanted to see buffalo, and they wanted to become cowboys. 
And so when he graduated high school in 1880, he and his best friend headed west. And evidently not with his parents' approval. His parents were what would what I would consider upper middle class people at the time. His his father ran a brass foundry, owned a brass foundry in New Jersey. So they, they were fairly well off. But uh, evidently they didn't approve of this project because by the time they, these two boys got to uh, Chicago, they had run out of money. He worked his way on the railroad out to Cheyenne, Wyoming. By the fall of 1880, he was in Cheyenne. That was where his his experience began. By three years later, he had come up to central Wyoming just as the Seawright brothers were building the famous Goose Egg Ranch that was the center of uh, Owen Wister's The Virginian uh, was that ranch. And he came to work for them right as that ranch was just being founded. And he worked for him for a couple, three years and then homesteaded himself. And this was all before Casper was there. The nearest town was 80 miles away, most of that. And uh, it, it was a uh, it was an interesting time period. That's fantastic. Did you always want to write professionally? How'd you get started? I've lived near Bishaw's Bridge, which was the first successful bridge to cross the Platte River during the immigration days. There were literally thousands of people drowned in the Platte River mid to late spring when they arrived to central Wyoming and the river was in flood. And before there was any dams there, uh, that flood could be pretty, uh, pretty horrendous. And there had been two or three bridges over the a few years there that had been attempted and failed. He built his bridge in 1852, and it didn't fail. And he made a ton of money on tolls on that bridge. It was in existence until 1865, which is pretty long for timber with no <laughs> untreated lumber, uh, underwater half the year uh, kind of thing. So it, it did it did quite well. I started researching that bridge because it was I would this bridge literally was in town in inside the what is presently the town of Evansville. And as you read, I was uh, the founder of the Evansville Historical Commission for uh, history of preservation in that area. And I, I was researching it for local history knowledge for the town uh, of what was the story behind this bridge. I wrote a magazine article on W.T. Evans, who was the founder of the town of Evansville. That was my first quote-unquote professional writing experience. I always liked the history, always liked the research. I kind of taught myself to be a writer. But living right on the Oregon Trail for the years, uh, there's a lot of history that's just right out your door. I was kind of a writer by accident. I was researching Reshaw and uh, a fellow by the name of John D. McDermott years ago here, but uh he was a, a pretty prolific writer on uh, history, especially of the Indian battles for the late 1800s in Wyoming, Montana, Dakotas. He was quite prolific writer on those subjects. And he had he had written a little bit about Reshaw occasionally and uh, was mentioned in a few of his books. I found out through a friend of a friend, I, I got his, his phone number and I called him to ask him a question about something in a book that he had recently released we had a very, very pleasant conversation on the telephone. The guy was just really nice to me on the phone. And uh, he, in the course of this conversation, well, what do you plan on doing with all this information once you get it? And he says, well, I hadn't really thought about it. He says, well, if you don't share it with other people, it doesn't do any good to, to know it. Uh, so he kind of talked me into getting a little more serious about writing. Then as, as my research continued, a couple of years later, I called him back again for some, I don't remember the circumstances, exactly the reason I called. And he says, well, well, how's the book coming? And I go, well, I haven't started writing yet. He says, 
why not? He says, we don't know the whole story yet. He says, well, if you're waiting to find out the whole story, you'll never write a word. <laughs> and uh, so he says, you start writing and you'll find out how much you don't know and how much and the research really begins. And it was literally the truth. And I and I, uh, I owe a great deal to that man for that little bit of advice because uh, reach out would never happen if it hadn't been for, for that advice that he gave me at the time. And that was how I became a writer. That and I had written, all I'd written was a few magazine articles uh, up until the time that I, I wrote Reshaw, Nancy Curtis, who owns High Plains Press, that published Reshaw, uh, very, very, very nice lady, very smart. And uh, she kind of took me under her wing a little bit there on Reshaw and really helped me. I mean, her advice, editor she hired, editor yeah, editing herself. Reshaw was written, rewritten, edited, rewritten again, edited, rewritten again several times. Uh, over the course of a few years. Consequently, that's why, in my opinion, it's an award-winning book uh, because I really had some really great editors and some great advice from people of how to write better. That was, I, I, I got a college education in uh, research writing from Nancy Curtis in the process of writing uh, Reshaw, you, you just can't get that. I, yeah, I would have never learned in college what I learned from that woman over the course of a couple, three years of working on that book with her. And uh, she believed in the project and believed in me. We we did a, a lot of work for long times. And and when we when it finally went to print, she emailed me about two weeks later. She goes, this is the first time in two or three years. We have an email back and forth at least two or three times a week. And <laughs> It had been like two weeks since we since you got email for since I miss my pen pal. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we're still very good friends. Uh, the first book signing of Empire and Casper, she was the first one in line. She wanted to get it. Uh, so I, I I really admire the lady and and uh, and I learned a lot from her. And uh, obviously, I I learned pretty well because Empire's doing pretty well also. So we'll uh, continue on that way, I hope. You know, that's terrific. I've always said that as writers, we write alone, but none of us writes alone. You know what yeah. I mean? We sit in a room by ourselves and we write, but we're not alone, never. And no. uh, especially on some of the best books, I think that we write, we we have to have some acknowledgements in the end there. You're a, you're not a native of Wyoming, but but you've been in Wyoming 40 years and and I've lived in Wyoming and I've got some uh, some ideas about what I love about Wyoming. What are what are some of the things that have kept you in Wyoming for 40 years? Well, as I said, I, I grew up in southeastern Oregon and I loved it there. I really did because my my father got transferred in his work. We moved away from there when I was in high school. Uh, but I always loved that area and and I I never could get back into I never could find a reasonable vocation to get back to that area to live. Opportunity came to move to Casper, Wyoming in 1981 for me, and uh, I, I loved it. I, I love the climate. I love the atmosphere. I love the the wildness of it and uh, sparse population. All all of the those all of those things. Oil, oil boom and bust economy that uh, uh, affects Wyoming so so strongly. During one of those bus periods, a few years later, I uh, took a job driving truck long haul uh, for a company out of California, actually, it was where they were based. But uh, I could live anywhere in the United States or Canada, as far as they were concerned, to this job. 
And I thought about it. And I was single at the time. And I, uh, I thought, well, I can live anywhere I want. But what do I want to do? And as I drove in uh, 48 states in Canada, going, you know, I haven't seen a single place I like better than where I'm at right now. Every, every place has its good things and its bad things, but Wyoming is, uh, is is pretty close to the old frontier in a lot of ways, and I like that. I, I like when you shake somebody's hand, it's a deal. You don't have to have a contract for it. Uh, I like uh, people aren't going to lie to you because then you get a reputation of being a liar and nobody will talk to you anymore. You, you know, there's there's just a lot of integrity with, with the people and the lifestyle in the state, and I, I truly enjoy that. I agree. Hey, Jeff, I'm going to wrap up uh, today by pointing people to uh, the web where they can find your books at Amazon and they can find you on uh, social media. I know you're on Facebook. And, right. uh, and uh, do you have a website? I do have a website. It's kind of under construction, but it is up and online. It is reachaw.net, www.reachaw.net. It's growing gradually. You'll find out a little bit about me and maybe a little bit more about the two books. Great. Both books are available on Amazon, as you said, and uh, Barnes & Noble has been very good to me. I've done very well with Barnes & Noble over the years, so I want to mention them also for that reason. And your, your local bookstores. I mean, the small town bookstores are, are the bottom line, the independents, as they call them. You know, it used to be the independent bookstores. Uh, when I was growing up, they would say the independent bookstores were the backbone of the industry. Yes. But uh, I think maybe that's not the case now, but they're certainly the soul of the industry. Yes. That's what I think. I think it's yes. the soul of the industry. Thanks for being here, Jeff. We'll talk to you again. Well, Thank you very much. I appreciate it. And thanks to you for listening. Paul and I appreciate your support of our Six Gun Justice podcast and hope you continue to enjoy each and every episode. As always, a hearty thank you to our sponsors, Wolfpack Publishing, author Chris Enns, and the Western Writers of America for making this podcast possible. Be sure to check our website, www.sixgunjustice.com, for links to previous podcast episodes, speed listens, and prior conversations along with reviews, interviews, and articles from the Western genre. Till next time, keep the sun at your back and a good horse at hand. Let's ride.